I'm starting a new sermon series. Can you hand me another tissue, babe? Thanks. We're starting a new sermon series, and uh, it's going to be three weeks, and I don't know how to title it. Uh, I think I'm calling it something like empirical Christianity, like what would it mean to create a foundation for faith uh, that uses experience, like our lives, as a guide? And I think if we use our experiences as a guide, it can help uh, get at the core of what unites us. So in our world, we're divided. Christians are divided. Uh, We've got, I don't know how many different groups and denominations and beliefs. If you asked someone, are you Christian? And they said, yes, you don't know anything about them. You don't know their ethics, their politics. You don't know how much they go to church or what they really believe. It could be, Right? We disagree about almost anything. But if we let our experience guide the core of our faith, I really think we might get to something that can unify. So this is going to be an act of simplification. right? So we're not, I'm not going to answer every question in the series, but I'm going to try to answer some. Second, the stuff I'm going to say, not everyone's going to agree with. I'm just going to say things you don't agree with, and that's okay, because I don't speak for God. I'm going to do the best I can to be faithful. I'm going to do the best I can to be honest. All I want you to do is consider what I have to say, right? Just consider it. Mull it over. Even in the midst of disagreement, I think it can help your faith, right? And the disagreement can help make your faith stronger. I'm happy to talk about anything you'd want to talk about. I'll get coffee. We can chat. I would love to hear your questions. I always say, anytime I say something that makes you feel uncomfortable or frustrated, turn it into a question. What would you want to ask me? Or anybody, for that matter, when you feel that feeling, right? So this will be a dialogue starter, not a dialogue finisher, right? Okay. So how do we come to belief? Like, what does it mean to, like, create a worldview, to create a belief system? Because ultimately, our actions flow out of what we believe, right? Beliefs are not innocent. Beliefs are not innocuous. If I believe food's in the kitchen, then when I get hungry, that's where I'm going to go look for food. My belief is going to lead to what I do. If I believe something's dangerous, I'm going to avoid it. If I believe something's good, I'm going to pursue it. Beliefs lead to what we do. So what does it mean to think about like belief formation? So if we think about it from like a scientific or philosophical, or more rational perspective. Typically, there's like this open-ended nature that I find powerful. Open-ended meaning, we're not sure what the conclusions are, right? So a scientist can't assume conclusions. They say, well, what does the evidence say? What does our experience tell us? What does observation say? And where the evidence leads, that's where our beliefs will go, right? And if new evidence comes along, we change. There's an open-minded, open-ended process. Philosophy is the same way, right? We say, where does the strongest argument lie? Where is there some evidence to support this? And you try to create it in a kind of inductive, open-ended, humble, loose-handed way. When I say inductive, I mean like probabilistic. Like, given what we know, this seems to be a solid, reliable conclusion. But I could be wrong. Right? There is no scientist that's like, that's the end of it. It's like, we could be wrong, but best evidence, this seems to be right. 
That's a very different way of coming to conclusions than many forms of faith. The process of belief formation and faith often involves something like, we already know what the conclusions are. We already know what you all are supposed to believe. I'm here to tell you what to believe. And in fact, uh, it's often related to certainty. These conclusions cannot be challenged. These conclusions you're not supposed to ask questions about because we know them and we're certain of them and typically it's predicated on some authority. So where uh, a more scientific approach might use observation, evidence, and life experience, faith will often say it's the authority of scripture, it's the authority of tradition, church history, it's the authority of some religious leader like the Pope or Joe Bankard or a Bible scholar, whatever. And we say, based on that authority, you need to believe it. Trust them. This is, they've said it. But you see the difference, right? Creating beliefs based on open-handed, less than certain, right? Empirical means versus coming to conclusions based on an appeal to an authority. We have certainty and the conclusions aren't to be questioned. Well, there's no wonder we have a conflict in our society between religious folks and science, religious folks and philosophy, the, the very methods we use to come to conclusions are so different. And I'm going to argue that maybe religious folks would do well to incorporate a more scientific mindset. A humble, inductive, open-ended mindset that lets our experience drive our belief. And that's going to be controversial, and I, you're not all going to agree. That's okay. Just consider. Just think about it. Um... So I have a congregational question. Uh, it's going to be on the screen, I believe. It's actually a couple of questions. They're all just trying to get at the heart of something that I couldn't come up with good words for. I think that sometimes it can be dangerous to appeal to authority. Like, you're in a discussion with someone or a disagreement with someone, and it's like, well, the Bible says X. Or Christian tradition says this. Or the Pope or the bishop, or the United Methodist Church says this, and you appeal to some authority as a conversation stopper, right? When people say that, it tends to not be a conversation starter. It's like, well, the Bible says, boop, and that, that should be the period at the end of that conversation. What's the danger in forming beliefs this way or coming to conclusions this way? It's a biased question. I'm, I want to highlight the dangers. Kermit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. You come to a conclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you come to a conclusion, and then it feels like uh, nothing will move us off of this conclusion, right? Like, if we say the Bible says, or I, I heard Kermit X, or I, 
And then how do, how do we think about education or growth or change or transformation? It's like it's almost locked so that change or question doesn't happen, right? This makes me nervous, yeah. A form of group think, what do you mean? Yeah. Uh, Groupthink is when everybody just is looking for a solution. They uh, filter out any other possible answer and then just all coalesce around this one, and it's not always the best one. Yeah, if you appealing to authority, uh, part of what happens there or can happen is a kind of move to conformity. Uh, part of how that happens is that religious communities, there's high consequences if you disagree. So if you're part of certain religious communities to not accept the authority of that church, that pastor, or how they see the Bible means you lose relationship with family, potentially. You lose relationship with friends. So that pressure to say we, we're all going to say the same thing, that, that conformity, I think it is real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's very separating and othering, and, and then there's like no human. Yeah, and you mentioned silencing, right? I feel, I feel silenced. I feel pushed away. Do I have a voice in this? Um, absolutely, right? Because if, if this is the way it's supposed to be, right? I say this is the truth. This is what the Bible says. This is what the bishop says. That's the end of it. For those that might have some place in their heart that would like to add more to that or ask questions about that, it feels silenced. Yeah. Yeah, Steph. Yeah, so um, I don't like ambiguity, naturally. My nature doesn't. I don't think you like ambiguity. The world we live in is a mess. It's complicated. Oh, if oh, to just have a clear set of black and white rules and certainty that allow me to feel at peace. Uh, but not only that, and, and this is the part that makes me, that I'm going to go doubly nervous about, is the level of certainty I have about my religious views is the level to which I feel comfortable uh, using those to control or oppress other people. The more certain I am of my views, the more anyone who disagrees with me is a threat and they should be silenced. Anyone who disagrees is something that needs to be controlled. So it is the history of like Christian colonization, of like we are certain, we are right, they disagree, they must be wrong, we feel justified, like holy, in our pursuit of 
controlling the people that don't like what we have to say. And I think that this is dangerous. I get nervous around certainty. Okay, so let me make some clarifying remarks. Uh, I love the Bible. I think it's wonderful. We use it every single Sunday. We use it in our Bible studies and small groups. It's how we use it. It's how we approach it. Scripture, in my mind, right, in our, and I think many of us feel similarly in the room, not all of us, it's we're using it as a tool to get to God. It helps us connect to God and each other. It opens our eyes. It transforms our hearts. And the Bible has been transforming hearts for thousands of years. But we don't look to Scripture, or at least I would caution us not to look at Scripture as though it's going to provide the kind of certainty that means the messy world goes away. And that we can use our reading of Scripture to impose our worldview onto others. I get very nervous about that. So we, we, we use it and we live it with a, a kind of humble, open-handed approach that says we want to read Scripture in ways that brings this community to life, that connects us to God, that fills our soul, but that does not necessarily create a set of certainty that would silence or other others. But that's a hard tension to live in, right? I want to appreciate and approach what the bishop says, UMC's Book of Discipline. I want to honor it. I want to think through it. I want to learn how to apply it in ways that will lead to life in this congregation. And I don't want to treat it as some sacred document that I can't question. So I think, I think there's a way of being faithful and also applying models of critical thinking, of open-handedness, open-mindedness, right? A kind of la a lack of certainty because I'm firmly convinced more harm, more lives have been taken, more wars have been fought from worldviews of certainty than those that lack certainty, correct? Would you agree? More harm, more war, more violence, more oppression because we know we're right. Well, then we might need to take on that very fundamental Christ-like virtue of humility, Philippians 2, right? Okay. Now it's going to get worse. So now I'm going to defend Thomas. Um, man, Thomas just wants to see for himself. That's all. That's it. I, I want you to put yourself in Thomas's position. Your friends are like, Jesus rose from the dead. I saw him. What's Thomas supposed to do? Like, oh, okay, I guess that's true then? Is, is like, would, that, would we want someone to use that method of coming to their beliefs? Like, well, my friend told me, so I just believed it. To me, that feels like a totally irresponsible way to come to belief. That for Thomas to say, I want to see it for myself, is uh, like responsible in some way. Like, help me see this, God. Help me experience this because I don't want to just take the word of someone else, even my closest friends. I mean, we all know Peter, not the greatest track record. I heard him denying you like two days ago. Now he just said you rose from the dead. I'm not so sure about that. Maybe we want to ask just a few more questions. So Thomas, to me, is like one of the heroes. He says, I'm going to push pause for a minute. Like, we get the benefit of hindsight. We get the benefit of Christ's resurrections 2,000 years later. This is right after it happened. And it's never happened before. Nothing that dies comes back to life. And Thomas is like, I need to know. 
And I do love Jesus' response, right? At least part of it. <laughs> I always feel nervous. There's a part of Jesus' response that I'm, we'll talk about. But the first part, Jesus is so graceful, right? Thomas is like, I don't know. I need to see. And Jesus doesn't say, get away, Thomas. You don't have faith. You're out of here. He says, Thomas, come closer. Thomas, come closer and touch. Put your hand in my side, right? That is, I believe, what God does with my doubt, with my lack of certainty and confidence, with my not knowing. Just come a little closer. I don't think I'm cast away because I can't bring myself to have perfect faith. I think God wants to draw me in and give me a little extra grace. The, the part that's tough, right, is that after this, Jesus is like, Thomas, you needed to, to believe by seeing, but greater are those that believe without seeing, right? What makes me nervous is that this passage often, I think, has historically at least been interpreted like believe without evidence, believe without seeing, like, do what you're told. That sort of religious mindset, I think, makes me nervous. And I can't possibly, I mean, I can't bring myself to believe that's what Jesus meant. Believe without any evidence. Just do whatever you're told. When the disciples said, I was raised, you should have just been like, yes, you were raised. Anyone who comes to conclusions using that method, that process, feels irresponsible. Would you not agree? Christians have clearly gotten things wrong a lot historically, right? We've oppressed lots of people. We've caused lots of pain. We've done lots of harm. Often because of the, this very mindset, this very worldview, we're certain, we're convinced. We don't really have to think about it. We're going to do what we're told. And I want to hit pause and say, maybe it would be best for us in this climate if we were more like Thomas. And we said, God, show us, teach us, guide us, lead us. We need more of you because we're not sure, because we don't know. In philosophy, we call this the ethics of belief. It means that there are responsible ways for cultivating a worldview, and there are irresponsible ways of cultivating a worldview. Okay? It's not about the conclusions. I can say X, and you can say not X, and both of us can be responsible so long as we use some rational, some responsible process for coming to our worldview. And part of that means saying, are there good reasons to believe? Do you have any experience that would indicate that that's true? Right? Why do you believe X and not Y? As long as you're able to engage that process, be thoughtful, articulate it, be open-handed and open-minded with that, then you're being responsible. And then you have people that disagree, and we say, well, you're both being responsible, and you can have a dialogue now, and that's okay. What the ethics of belief says, though, you can't simply just trust without any evidence. You can't simply just do what you're told. You can't have certainty in the absence of any reasons for it. That's how you get gross error. Part of why I care about this, part of why this matters to me, um is I think there's very few evil people in the world. Very few. Very, very few. I think most of the evil done in the world are from people with very good intentions. Like their heart is pure in that they believe they're doing the right thing. But all of the evidence would indicate that what they're doing is harmful 
and unjust. I'll give an example. Hold on real fast. So Megan Phelps Roper, I don't know if you know her. I just listened to a podcast she was the host of. It's fascinating. She grew up in the um, Westboro Baptist Church, so you've heard of them, I think. They're a really small church in Kansas, or it's in Kentucky. But, um, but they're, they're, they're really aggressive in their views. They protest funerals of the military and things. Uh, they say God hates gay people, things like that. I mean, they have signs. They get a lot of attention, but there's only about... 80 people, and most of those are one core family. Well, she was a daughter of, the, uh, of one of the main pastors of this family that leads this church. I mean, it is as fierce as possible, right? When she was 25 years old, I mean, you can watch clips of her, for instance, on like daytime talk shows, just totally defending the faith, her version of Christianity, her family. At 25, she left the church. She got out, she gets away. But when you hear her speak, it's so beautiful. She has such empathy for her family. She loves her family dearly. They've cut her out entirely. But she talks about growing up how much they just wanted to serve God. That's it. That's it. They love the Bible with their whole heart. And that made, they were justified in calling people horrible names because God hates them and they need to know that God hates them. But their intention weren't evil. Their intention isn't to get rich. Their intentions aren't to be malicious. Good intentions. But I would argue the whole method of constructing that worldview is based on appeals to authority and not any sort of evidence. Okay. So let's, let's consider. What if, what if you and I, what if we treated life a little bit like a science experiment. What if we treated it like trial and error? And here's the question. Here's my question. When we do this, does it lead to life? Does it connect you to God? Does it feel authentic? Does it connect you to your deepest self? Does it lead to things like restored relationships? Does it lead to forgiveness? What are the consequences of actually doing this thing? What does it lead to? Or does this lead to harm, anger, division, broken relationships? Sin leaves telltale signs. We're going to talk about this next Sunday. Sin leaves telltale signs. It breaks relationship with God. It breaks relationship with ourselves. It creates harm. It creates division. It creates isolation. I think maybe we can define sin by its fruit. And I think what Westboro Baptist Church is doing leads to anger and division and isolation and hate. They won't even talk to their daughter. Then what you're doing is wrong. I don't care what your intentions are. All of the evidence suggests this isn't of the kingdom of God. What leads to life? What leads to restoration? What leads to redemption? What leads to hope? In your experience, with your eyes, that should unite us. That should cut through all the theological weirdness. The Trinity, is it more like an egg, a shell, a yolk, and an, or is it more like water, a gas, and a liquid, and a solid? I don't care. I want to know what unites us, which is like the stuff that is going to lead to the kingdom of God. I don't, like, does my cat have a soul? Will I see her in heaven? Like, I don't know. Why are we, like, why is this stuff 
We, it's like theological speculation. I want to cut through that. I want to get to the heart of the kingdom of God. And I think that has to be something like we're humble, we're open, we don't know the answers yet, but when we live, we see life. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Okay. I promise, this is longer than normal. I promise I'm coming to a, I'm like going to land it somewhere. Here's what I started thinking about it. I find myself having conversations with students all the time, and they're so, it feels, they're confused, but here's why they're confused. They're confused because they're trying to get the one right theological answer, and it's paralyzing. Like, this seems right. This feels like what my life is leading me towards. But, you know, my mom said, like, Leviticus or whatever, and it's like, oh, my gosh, but everything in your experience suggests this is where you should go. So, here's some examples. Like parenting. Um, You know, I was told that ultimately to raise my children in a Christian fashion meant if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. So you have to spank. You have to spank on principle. That's like the only way you get your kids to to like listen, right? And um, none of that fit with my experience. None of that fit with my heart. I I, my kids are wonderful, and we have, they have consequences, and we have rules, and we don't spank. And I tried to figure out, like, how to do the least amount of physical harm while getting the same results, which means, like, to demand respect and responsibility and kindness, right? And, of course, it can go the opposite way, and we can say, on principle, no one ever gets to spank, but I've never raised other people's kids, and I know some kids, maybe that's something that's needed. I don't know. What I do know is I need to live out my faith in a way that says, does this lead to life or not? And I know lots of people, when they spank, they feel horrible inside. It's terrible for the kid. Everything feels like this is a divided thing. It's like they're afraid of me. Then listen to that. Why on principle, like, to me, the core is like, does this lead to life, redemption, restoration, or not? And you have to figure that out by through trial and error. Your motive is love. I want to love my kids. I don't know how to best to do that because every kid's different. You think there's some rule book that I could apply to both Nina and Sullivan and all of your kids? There's no way because your kids are different than mine. Marriage. Ah, there's one way, you know. Uh, women stay home. They cook. Men, like, grill uh, and work on cars or something. Um, you know how this goes, though, right? And it's like, on principle, on theological principle, there's like everyone fits. And then all of a sudden, it's like, but that doesn't fit me. That doesn't work. That's not our relationship. I can't even do addition. Why should I be doing the finances? My wife's better at it. And you start to say, what? Where's our gifts? Where has God called us? Where's our passions? And you let that experience shape what leads to life. My spiritual practice is growing up. It's like, well, you better do your daily devotions. You better read the Bible and pray 30 minutes every day. And so I would make myself do it so I could check it off a list. And not one time did it connect me to God. Not once. It was a chore. And you want to know, now I walk on the green belt and I practice my breath and I invite God to be part of my life and I don't say anything. And it totally connects me to God. And I had to find what worked for me and you have to figure out what works for you. Because some of you, Doing a daily devotion connects you to God. And it didn't work for me, but it works for you. So you have to treat it like a science experiment. What connects you to God? What fills your soul? What fills your life with goodness and love and beauty in the presence of God? And it's not the same for all of us. It's just not. So are we willing like, to open that up and to say, God will reveal 
in the living, in the feedback loop, right? And we're willing to sort of move that way. But it means having an open community. It means that me and Emily don't have to agree on everything. And she's going to find things in her life that connect her to her kids and her heart and her soul. But do you know how much pain? I think most of you know. When it was like, no, to be Christian meant this stuff. And, it, and like, I, I, if, if that was my only option, I don't know if my faith would have survived. Thank goodness God gets to meet us right where we're at. Let's pray.